Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could just outsource your disputes to Cleros? Whenever users have a dispute on your platform, Cleros will select a jury to analyze the dispute. They're going to see the evidence, see the agreement between parties, and they are going to make a decision about who is right. And then Cleros informs you the decision, your platform, and then this is enforced by the smart contract and the money. Let's say Alice wins, so she's reimbursed the money that she would pay Bob for this. So. This is one example in the freelancer, but imagine all of these platforms that just connect to Cleros through some pipes and send disputes and Cleros sends back decisions. So this is the vision of what Cleros is going to build. This is why we call it the decentralized court for of the Web3 ecosystem. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and what I really enjoy about crypto and Web3 is the intersection of economics, law, and computer science, and how it changes the concept of jurisprudence and governance in the world. With me today, Federico S., founder and president of the cooperative Claros, and most interesting, we are both classmates at the Singularity University in the 2016 Global Solutions Program. Federico, welcome to the show again. Hello, Bernard. Great to be here with you again. Excited about the conversation. Yes, and I can tell you that we always talk about Web3 and crypto, and I think half the world didn't realize that we were connected some way. But of course, since our last conversation in 2018, where you came on as a guest and really educated me about the concept of Claros at that point in time, and also how to do an ICO then, after that, what have you been up to? I, I still can't believe that this was like five years ago, 2018. So this, those were the very early days of Claros. We were just doing our ICO that ran from May to July 2018. So this was even before we, we launched our product. We launched the product the day when the ICO finished. We launched July 15 of 2018. And from that moment, I don't know where to start. We launched the product. We developed different use cases. The way in which I typically pitched Claros in the beginning was like a, as a system that can resolve disputes between like freelancers, Alice and Bob kind of situations. We came up with lots of different use cases through learning cases that are connected to compliance, for example, that we can discuss later if, if you want. We did another round of ICO because we did it in a different way than most projects. Instead of just one big sale, smaller sales as you make progress. We earned recognition in lots of different places. In the legal industry, for example, we came to advise the UN in dispute resolution in different countries. I don't know. There are so many different things. I just opened this to you and you can ask whatever you want to follow up. <laughs> Before we dive really deep into the conversation, I want to ask, we have spent many late nights discussing the concept of justice, distributive justice, and also that I'm sure over these 
past five years, you have also evolved in your career. I want to ask this again. What are the most important lessons you can share with my audience about your career journey so far? When I met you first in Singularity, I was just getting started with the Gleros and my vision came from basically me being from Argentina, me being from a country where you don't have many opportunities for work first, because it was my problem, but also to give people in developing countries the opportunity to get into the world economy. When you are from an emerging economy, you now you have access to education that you didn't have before. Like you have YouTube and you can learn how to code or how to design or whatever. So you could, you have kind of level the playing field with people from other developed countries, but then you cannot sell your services because financial systems are very underdeveloped. So you can't charge customers in other countries, but then crypto gave us the ability for you. It doesn't matter where you are and you can like transact as anyone else in the world, but still you wouldn't be hired by a guy, let's say in Singapore, because you are in Singapore, I'm in Argentina. What do you know if I'm going to make the video, I promise you right away. So you wouldn't hire me, but if you have some system that can help you make sure that if I don't do my job properly, you can recover your money through a trial and we can get into this later. So this was the early vision that we had for Claros. And then over time, we learned lots of different things that this use case that we were targeting at the beginning didn't work at all. <laughs> it didn't work at all because we were so early in the industry that the gas cost that Ethereum had was super expensive. So you wanted to solve the problem of a $200 contract and you had to pay $500 in gas fees because of, you know, all of the problem of car. So over time, like we, what we learned is that if we want to get to this vision that was the original vision I had, you have to go through a path that is not that linear. You have to go through different ways because you have to keep the project going and you need to still keep paying for salaries and paying for stuff. And one of the things that I learned a lot is you have to be flexible in some ways of what you are doing, but still not that much flexible that you would betray like your original vision, because the original vision I had when I started working on this, it's still the same. It's like giving opportunities to people in countries that had typically had no access to the world economy to like actually earn their living through, I would say meritocracy. It doesn't matter where you are born. It matters what you can do and your hard work. So I don't know if that's, this is a very good answer to your question, but that's kind of what I learned through time, Claros. This is a very good reflection about how you've been thinking about things because at the very start, when we met, you were talking about the concept of Claros that was only in the concept stage. And then you published the yeah. white paper and then the yellow paper. And now it is on-chain as well, right? So I want to come to the main subject of the day, which is about the Claros 2.0 and also the concept of distributive justice. The last time when you were here, you were educating me on how to do an ICO, initial coin offering. I think that has also changed in the market. And then talk about the initial journey of how you design Claros as a blockchain. But to start, given you and Claros have emerged from the first crypto winter and have been also mentioned by Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum and also CB Insights as a blockchain with an interesting application, which is very hard to find these days because the problem with everyone is that there's no application on blockchain. So now you have a foundation, a development team. In fact, I know you have a person running Asia Pacific as well. So can you share the global vision 
and mission of Kleros now? Yeah, sure. So the vision of Kleros now is that we have this world of Web3, and we think that lots of the applications of the internet of Web2 are going to be transformed into different decentralized applications owned by the community. Like now we have like eBay, we will have a marketplace that is run by the community Web3 protocol. We have like a Facebook, then we will have a, another protocol for those social media and all of the different Web2 companies will be, in our opinion, transformed into Web3. And uh, smart contracts are super smart in order to self-execute as program, but they are not smart enough to resolve like subjective situations. Yeah. And for example, the freelancer situation where Alice hires Bob in a freelancer marketplace, and then there's a dispute on whether he made the job as she wanted. And this is impossible to solve by just smart contract. You need kind of a jury or a mini trial of people who are going to decide who is right about this case. And the fact that this happens on Web3 also is bringing something that I didn't like foresee in the early days. I did foresee that people would engage in low value transactions across borders. So arbitration as is traditionally understood, international arbitration was only developed for big disputes like oil and gas, patents, but not for a $500 video or whatever. So I did see that. What I didn't see back then is that lots of the parties that would engage in these commercial transactions and that would have disputes would be anonymous because people start to interact through their Ethereum address or their like ENS domain, and you don't know who the other person is. So this kind of betrays the most fundamental aspects of arbitration. You know who parties are, you know who the jury is. This doesn't happen like this in the metaverse world. So the vision for us is to provide a digital solution service to all of these different use cases happening in this metaverse world, in this Web3 applications that require some way to interpret subjectivity arising from interactions and from contracts and to produce decisions on who is right. Um, we need, at least for now, humans to analyze this evidence and to make a ruling. So that's the vision, to build this decentralized court system for all of the Web3 ecosystem that is arising right now. The one thing I learned from you is that we, you talk about this vision probably eight years back and then to the point where you started until now, it's still the same. So it's pretty consistent. So I want to make sure the audience understand fundamentally what Kairos is about. Can you explain what it means to be a decentralized arbitration service and how does it deal with the disputes in this new Web3 economy? The example of Bob and Alice trying to resolve a $500 contract. We think of arbitration, as you rightfully pointed out, for like big oil disputes, etc. But when it comes to making it decentralized, making it available for the common man to make the jurisprudence accessible to everyone, how does it work? So let's continue with the freelancer example because it's easier for everyone to understand, so no problem. So let's say you, Bernard, are in the founding team of decentralized freelancer marketplace. So you are trying to build your marketplace. You're trying to get people who are workers and you're trying to get clients. So you start building this flywheel. And then at some point you will have disputes because the client is going to argue that the freelancer didn't comply with the work as they expected. So how do you deal with this? One option is that you and your founding team make a team to handle disputes and they, it's a resolution team. So this is one way, but the problem is that this is not 
First, this is not your core business. You don't want to be dealing with disputes. You want to be growing your marketplace. And also, no, it's not decentralized in the end. What happens in traditional web two companies is that when the eBay system resolves disputes happening between users, they are not really impartial. Still, the company wants to maximize revenue and it's going to probably, you know, in the end, lean on the side of the user that makes more revenue for the company. So it's not very credible. So what if you could like just outsource your disputes to Claros? So whenever users have a dispute on your platform, this is sent to Claros, we'll select a jury to analyze the dispute. They're going to see the evidence, see the agreement between parties, and they are going to make a decision about who is right. And then Claros informs you the decision, your platform, and then this is enforced by the smart contract and the money, let's say Alice wins. So she's reimbursed the money that she would pay Bob for this. So this is one example in the freelancer, but imagine all of these platforms that just connect to Claros through some pipes and send disputes and Claros sends back decisions. So this is the vision of what Claros is going to build. This is why we call it the decentralized court for the Web3 ecosystem. One thing I'm always curious about is what is the difference between Claros from the traditional arbitration mechanism that is performed by human professionals or otherwise we call lawyers with judges and jury in the courts that's run by governments? The problem is not so much evident if you are, say, in a developed country, say, in the US or even Singapore, where the rule of law is very clear. But I want to expand it out to the rest of the world because I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to even get basic justice or even getting fair arbitration or in a court of law. Maybe you can help me to make that distinction here. Yeah, so the traditional arbitration world, and you have some profession of people who are called arbitrators. They are experts, they studied law, have a number of qualifications, which is perfect. And so when you have to resort to them, so parties typically resort to arbitration when they have a contract and this contract have an arbitration clause and this arbitration clause says, okay, if there is a dispute in this contract, this is going to go to the arbitration seat of Singapore and there is a chamber of commerce that, that, that has a number of arbitrators qualified. Perfect. This is a system that works. But it's super expensive. This is okay if you want to resolve, as we said, multi-million dollar disputes, big oil, even patents, trade disputes, construction disputes. But truth is that the reality of the world economy has evolved because of the internet. And what we have now is something that we never had before in the history of humankind. Disputes that happen through the borders across jurisdictions for value that is a couple hundred dollars because of a little freelancing job, the video, a website. So this type of dispute, no one, when they signed the New York Convention in 1958 for the UN to decide how arbitration laws would function for enforceability, no one imagined this world of cross-country, cross-jurisdiction, low-value claims. So new world, all technology that doesn't provide the right answer. So you need a new system that can first operate across borders. Second, that can be super cheap in order to solve these couple of hundred dollars, you know, claims. So how do you resolve this? The traditional arbitration methods, they don't work for the lower value in the bottom of the pyramid kind of claims. So you need to think radically different here and to create a mechanism that works in a completely different way to what we are like used to.
and how does this work? So we used crypto economics and game theory in order to incentivize any user from different, from who knows where, to resolve different types of claims through the use of a token that people have to stake into the court where they want to work. The token is called Pinakion, PNK. The name comes from the ancient tradition, ancient Athenian token that the Athenians used to use for being drawn in popular trials in the ancient police. There's lots of inspiration. Just means randomness. You know why? Because user deposits a token, and this is like a lottery ticket that gives you the right to be drawn as a juror in the court where you want to work. Let's say I am a guy, I live in Buenos Aires and I want to be a juror in the freelancing marketplace court. I deposit the token there. Other people deposit their token and Kleros draws randomly, let's say three jurors who are going to have the right to see the evidence, analyze the case and then vote on who is right. So then each token, each user has the incentive to try to see how others are going to vote based on a shelling, on a concept called shelling point from game theory. And let's say that I deposit the token, I was drawn, my token gets locked into the court, and now I have to see the evidence, and I know that there are going to be other two jurors that are going to vote. I don't know what they are going to do, and I know that if I vote with the majority of the jurors, I'm going to get my token back and collect arbitration fee that comes from the party that loses the case. So this arbitration fee can be in DAI or stable coins or Ether. So let's say I vote like the majority. I get the token, I get money, all good. If I vote in the minority, what happens? I lose my token and this gets sent to the two jurors that voted equally, and then I don't get any arbitration fee. Why this works in this way? So. Let's say I am a user. I don't want to like take time to see the case, analyze the video, see if this is the right quality. I'm just going to vote randomly. So the thing is that this would make Cleros produce very bad rulings if everyone votes randomly. So you still need Cleros to incentivize people to actually analyze the evidence and vote on the right decision. So this idea of shelling point developed by Thomas Schelling, an economist from the 1950s, 60s, and game theory, all that, means that if you agree with the rest who do you don't communicate so you don't speak to the others or you don't know how they're going to vote if you agree with them you make money if you don't agree you lose money and the thing is that if i vote randomly i might be lucky and sometimes be on the right side of the majority but most likely i'm just going to be on the wrong side and i'm going to lose money so let's say i put the token i on the wrong side lose it put another token get drawn wrong side lose the token and then as i Keep playing this game, I start losing all my money, and at some point I like leave the system. On the other hand, if I do take the time to see the evidence, analyze the case and all that, and then sometimes I might be wrong because there is in subjectivity, there is interpretation. Many, many times, even in the real world of arbitration, people disagree because there is subjectivity. But on average, if I keep doing this, I'm putting the token, get right, get the money from the arbitration fee, put another token, make money. So this is the basics of how the system works. And through using this very specific type of incentives, Cleros can greatly expand the efficiency of the system in order to make a super cheap, super efficient way of arbitration that can resolve cases that are under $500 easily. I mean, the arbitration costs in Cleros depends on the court. So it's not 
straightforward, but in general, it goes from a couple dozen dollars, maybe a couple hundred dollars. So it's incredibly more efficient than traditional arbitration. And this is why you can address bottom of the pyramid kind of cases that were not addressable by systems that use the traditional methods. This is way more complicated. In the end, we are a company of mathematicians, so we spend a lot of time of tuning this, but this is in a nutshell how it works. Can I dive a little bit deeper here? So the arbitration process, and I think you mentioned a couple of times, is actually going to be cheaper. Is it because you remove the certain layers of, say, for example, paying a lawyer on the in the arbitration process? Because lawyer fees are usually where most of the cost really sits in. The way I would think about when you have your jurors or whoever is administrating the case, as we call it in the traditional world. That's a good question. So the first items to consider is that not all disputes in the world are like legal disputes. In particular, Kleros is going to address disputes that are not legal in nature. This freelancer kind of dispute, this is not the kind of things lawyers focus on. And this is more like a commercial type of dispute. Another kind of use case is, let's say, content moderation. Lots of disputes happening in the world these days. It's about some guy gets banned from a Telegram group or Facebook or Twitter. And how is this decision made? There is a moderator working on Twitter or Telegram who decided to ban someone because he was reported. So this was a mini trial, if you want, that uh, someone made against a user and decided it should be banned. So this is also an, another example of a situation of a dispute between the user that reports the misbehavior and the user that misbehaved, allegedly. And this is not the kind of dispute that are going to go to a lawyer. So there is a very big amount of disputes that are kind of more commercial consumer type of disputes that are not really addressed by, by the legal systems. Or they are addressed by legal systems. If you consider Twitter a legal system or Telegram a legal system, then it is a, yeah, they have rules, they have enforcement, they have decisions. So you well, we can get philosophical and see and start discussing what is a legal system. Let's leave that for later. So first, the type of dispute is not legal, so they don't require lawyers. They don't require people who charge the fees of lawyers. Second, with this mechanism design and the way it has to prevent abuse from users who are going to be lazy and not vote, looking at the evidence and all that. So it kind of greatly expands the supply of potential jurors that are going to be able to resolve disputes. The world is potentially a juror, let's say. So, so jurors are anonymous, so we don't know who they are. You can imagine a panel of three jurors is going to be made. A guy who is a student, a university student from, from Bangalore, another guy who knows in the Philippines, and another guy who is in Buenos Aires. Students, maybe people who don't make a lot of money, they don't have expensive offices in New York to pay rent. So they are people who have some time and they can develop some skill, simple skills. Evaluating if some comment on some social media complies or not with the rules, if the video is or not well done, you name it. And so the hourly cost of these people is not very high. So you could equate it in some way to process similar to Mechanical Turk, where you have people working, lots of people working, looking for jobs. And so since there are so many of them, they can supply is very high. So the price goes down. So they, there is an equilibrium price, different courts. We have different equilibrium prices where the amount of jurors will 
come to an equilibrium with the demand of jurors. So in the end, that's what the economic model says in Claros. So this is the reason why this can be so cheap. And this can only be so cheap because we have devised it this way to have this very big pool of jurors without these guys just gaming the system and not doing the job because of all of the economic incentive system that we have developed. So this is why Claros is so, so efficient. And what we imagine is going to happen in the future is that there's going to be a division of three main segments in the industry of this resolution. So for the more objective and simple cases, this is going to be resolved probably by just AI. Some automated tool is going to resolve cases. This is how e-commerce platforms also already do this. Content moderation is already done in big part by AI. But there are some cases or some use cases that are low cost, but machines cannot really understand them or they cannot really solve them very well because they require understanding the context when something happened, understanding the intentions of parties. The very good example is content moderation. Harassment, for example, in social media is super hard for AI to understand because they don't know what's going on. So this is very hard. And this is a very good use case for a system like Claros. And then more complex disputes with more subjectivity or that require legal knowledge, that's still going to be under the umbrella of lawyers. And this is not where Claros is going to work because it requires specialized knowledge, it requires more complex understanding of cases, and this still will require lawyers. That's how we imagine the industry is going to evolve. So in the whole explanation of that process, can you elaborate on, say, the tokenomics of Claros? I think because of the game theory mechanism you use, there are different stakeholders that are at play in the Claros ecosystems. For example, you can join as a juror from any part of the world. And based on your comments or based on your points of view with relates to the case, maybe for a very simple case, say, content moderation could be settling a very small dispute. But I think one interesting thing I will also want to tease out from asking this question is that how do you actually incentivize that juror? Okay. And what must the juror do in order to earn that specific token? Because I can think of abuses in a way that like 20 people, maybe from different countries decided to become a cabal and then pick on yeah. the cases and do it like at scale, right? Collusion. Yep. That's right, yeah. the concept of collusion <laughs> in game theory. Yeah, exactly. So look, as I was saying, you have the token, you deposit the token, then you get drawn, and then you have like three guys that get drawn to this case. Let's say it's me, you, and our friend who lives in Bangalore. Okay, so we kind of, we make our team wins, you know, party, we make Alice win because he's our friend, and then we kind of steal money from Bob. What happens? Claros has a appeal system. So the losing party could appeal to the ruling. And now instead of just three, there's going to be seven jurors. So, okay, let's say we call our other friend Carl from Mexico, and then we get four out of seven, we still win, but then there's going to be another appeal. And now there's going to be 15 each time, twice plus one. So now it's 15 and then it's 31 and then it's 63 all the way to 511. So can we, ha do we have enough friends to have more than the half of 511? Maybe, let's say we have enough friends, but then now to get all of these places in the court, we had to buy a lot of PNK tokens to get drawn at each time. And then let's say this, we still win the last case, and now everyone knows Claros is, doesn't work, so the 
price of the token is going to go down, like it's going to crash very fast to nothing. So now we spent billions of dollars to buy lots of tokens in order to win a case for $500, and then we spent millions. So all of this game theory makes that the attacker who wants to attack Kleros has to endure a very important pain on himself to sustain this attack. So that is the magic of the game theory that happens in Kleros. Which is interesting because you're in this situation as a what if the defendant or prosecutor did not like the arbitration process in the real world and demands the courts for an appeal, correct? And then the judge is still based on the ruling and say, this is done, right? You can't appeal. But in this case, what you're doing, you're saying is that you take, you increase the amount of jurors and make the cost so high that it, as long as there's someone who feels that appeals process should continue going on and on, you can actually push it all the way up such that no one can game the system, number one. And number two, I think it addresses the question of corruption in the system because your court system, you're actually additionally pushing the supply of jurors in order to try to arbitrate that same process. Did I get that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's how it works. Perfect. So I'm quite curious, like, what is the one thing you know about Claros and decentralized arbitration service that not many people do? Everything is open source. I guess everyone knows lots of it more than in the traditional proprietary software world. I know if I kind of, I have a lot of this learning of trying to find the good use cases. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. I would say that it's not something I know, but lots of people ask me like, for example, hey, can you use Claros to replace oil and gas arbitration? Can you use Claros to replace no big blow? You know, I don't care using Claros for replacing traditional arbitration. Claros wins not by resolving big value claims. It wins by resolving lots of little small value claims. So if we can make that, that's a way to change the world, right? Using Claros to give this justice, democratizing justice, if you want, since we were to singularity, we know that everything that becomes starts digitized, as the Peter Diamandis six steps say, well, end up being democratized. So lots of the economic activities becoming digitized. So it's going to be, including this Pedro solution. So the only thing I would say I know that other people don't, it's not that what I know, it's that what I want to happen and when I, what I want to solve is not the big thing, the big cases, it's the small ones, because that's what changes the world. So that's, that would be the thing I want to happen. That's a very important point. So I want to get into something that is pretty interesting as a concept in Claros. Can you explain the proof of humanity concept and how does it work or helps Claros in designing that decentralized arbitration system? Good. So as I was saying, so Claros has this mechanism where anyone can become a juror just by holding a token. So you have the token, you buy the token, you stake it in a court, then you're drawn. So this works in many use cases of Claros. There are other use cases where people, they just want people having some qualifications or belong to some community in order to be like a juror. Let's say we are part of Singularity alumni network, and there are disputes there. And we, because of how we operate, of our beliefs, our culture, whatever, we only want people that belong to Singularity 
to be eligible as jurors to, for the cases. So in the traditional world, before proof of humanity, you could not do this because you don't know who the person is. You just know there is a Ethereum address and that's it. And then anyone can make a new address and a new address. So, it's, so this is why in order to enable use cases where you can know who the person is or to which community it belongs, you still need first a system that gives every human only one account that they control. So, and this is where Proof of Humanity comes. So this is an app we developed where the goal is to create a human registry that doesn't have any duplicates in the registry. So how it works, I want to have a profile in this registry. I can go to the app. I have to submit a photo of me and a video holding like a sign showing my Ethereum address I want to have associated with my profile. And I say, I certify I'm a real human and I'm not already registered in this registry. And then this becomes visible to all of the community. And people first, I need to get a vouch, like someone who is already in the registry, they need to say, hey, I know this guy and I know this guy is human. So first thing, and after I get this vouch, then my submission stays visible for everyone to see. And let's say no one has any objection because they don't think I'm a deep fake, for example, or they don't think I am duplicated. Then mm. no one says anything. And then my profile is in the registry. And now I have this profile and I'm, let's leave it for now there. And I'm going to explain later how this works. So, but let's say now I submit another profile with another video, I kind of put my, my, my hair different, and then I put some glasses different and some makeup maybe because I want to have a duplicate registry because I could use this for having more voting power in an app. So I make the submission and let's say that Bernard, who is a very smart person, he said, look, this guy, this submission, look, this is the same guy that submitted like one month ago. And look, this is the photo now, this is the previous one. I challenge you. So you can make a deposit to challenge my submission and then now there's a trial between me and you. You say, this is duplicate. I said, no, this is duplicate. And then Clero's trial, jurors are going to decide who is right. If you win, I get removed and you get my deposit. If I win, I get your deposit. This is how we incentivize for the community itself to kind of self-organize to produce this non-duplicate registry of humans, you know. Okay, now you have this registry without duplicates. Why this is important? Because let's say someone wants to use this in order to DAO governance. You have people voting in DAO proposals and typically DAO voting was done through tokens. You have tokens, one token, one vote, and then you do it like this. Some people think this is plutocratic because rich people will have more money and more voting power. What about one person, one vote? But if you want to do one person, one vote, you better be sure that just one human will have one account, otherwise you will have lots of fake accounts being created to tamper with the election. Now, for humanity, you have the certainty that every person that is registered is just one person and one real human. And now you can make one person, one vote without being gamed. And now let's go back to Kleros. Okay, let's say Singularity wants people to only vote in cases involving Singularity if they went to Singularity. So now let's say Singularity, when you graduate, they give one POAP, one SBT token to people 
who were part of Singularity. And now when there's going to be, when you want to state your coin to be drawn as juror in Singularity court, the court will ask you, okay, first proof to me that you went to Singularity. So you need to show them you have this token and then you can be drawn. So this use case is enabled only after we developed for humanity because it was not possible to do that without this non-duplicate registry. I'm going to come in from the AI point of view because that's where my yeah. all expertise <laughs> come from. There is the deep fake one, which you covered very nicely. I can, in principle, in terms of also being a cybersecurity hacker, I can generate many synthetic identities. Okay. So you can run now, I mean, there is ChatGPT, there is MidJourney that do images for DALI and et cetera. And I can generate multiple duplicate copies of that. I think the question is whether it will bypass the vouch piece where you have a, someone to vouch the system, right? So that's the first, if I'm thinking of from the other side of point of view, when I'm trying to hack into your system from the AI side, I will think about this kind of what I call synthetic identity attack because I'm trying to create as many identities generated by these uh, generative AI algorithms. And then I try to maybe just like an NFT, like a bot, you can take all the different features and I just attack based on that, right? But I'll generate a whole class of identities. I think that, that, that this is like the attack on many. So that's the first case, all right? Maybe we go down a little bit because I have two other case studies I can I just thought of that I can can challenge yeah. the purpose of humanity here. So the first the thing is that the people who vouch for you after you make your submission has skin in the game. Because this person, if you end up being challenged and being a duplicate or like a deep fake, this person will get removed from the registry. So they if they vouch for a malicious user that person is considered malicious also, and then they get removed. Right? So this is a way to, de to defend against that, the vouch system. And we could, let's say, instead of just asking one vouch, we could ask three vouches or five or whatever. Of course, ad asking more vouches adds like more friction into the onboarding process, but has a more security. So these are you no know, all trade-offs that you have to think about. Yeah. So that answers the first okay. question. Okay. That's the first okay, use case. Now I'm going to try the second use case. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the concept of soulbound NFTs, which is introduced by Vitalik. So if there is a way where I can have a soulbound NFT, does it help or not help the situation of proof of humanity here? Because I could, in principle, buy out as many soulbound NFTs as possible. But okay, let's say you still can't bypass your system because you are clearly saying that credibility is important. In fact, if I were to think about Claros in that way, you are also a credibility system verifier from the proof of humanity. So in the second situation where I can exploit it through, let's say having multiple soulbound NFTs, because I do not know that address, whether is it all belong to one person or belong to one person. So the question then becomes, yeah. how do you deal with that? How would you attack it like in this way? How would you use this soulbound concept to attack the registry? Uh, let's say I can buy identities from people within the system. I think your your malicious credibility thing can outweigh it. The only question is how much does it exhaust your system in trying to vouch it? Yeah, it's coming to the attack from the other way. This is a very good question. And this is an ongoing discussion. If this is a, an attack 
or on the system or not. Because let's say I make a profile in the system through the usual method, but then I give you my private key. So you control my profile in the end and you can vote on my profile. And then another person makes another one and then give it to you because you pay them. And people have tried to attack the system in this way. And this is what we call farming profiles. You have a farm That's right. of profiles. And so in, in one way, you could argue that this is not an attack. Still, proof of humanity is still working as intended in the sense that it's only giving each human only one registry in, that, in this system. And then whatever happens with those profiles, how they are used outside of the system, it's not the business, let's say. So that's one way to see it. Another way to see it is that, okay, it's true that this is not breaking the system, but still it's messing with some use cases because if you want to attack a voting system through having many profiles, people who don't even know what the profiles are, let's say, you can go to a train station and ask people, read this sign, make this video, and you, I, I will give you $5 and then go some like emerging economy and lots of people are going to do that and people have done that in Argentina. So this is a very good question to which there is not a very clear answer because it's very hard to control for this. What things that we are thinking to resolve this, there is kind of statistical analysis you can do with the on-chain data of, okay, I'm seeing all of these profiles that have been created like on this day between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., they seem to be voting in the same way in these different apps. This kind of seems like to be like someone is controlling this as a, as a farm. There is that type of defense. There is a full discipline called computational antitrust that uses like antitrust techniques, the collusions that you see between firms and how they raise prices and they make promotions at the same time or not. Because so, and then they make inferences about coordinated action unlawful coordinated action, these kind of approaches can be used in order to detect and prevent that type of attack. So this is not a perfect answer, but this is something we are thinking and tools are being developed for on-chain analytics to resolve these problems. This is the reason why we spent so many nights in the GSP in 2016 talking about that. Okay, one more situation. This situation is something that we don't plan for. So I will talk a little bit about the concept. So there is a particular AI company that generate what is called an AI avatar. And let's assume, and, and this, this is a real use case. So apparently in Dubai, debt collection is extremely difficult for banks. Okay. So the what happened was the Dubai Bank decided to invent a digital avatar powered by this company called Soul Machines. It's called Fatima, which is a digital AI avatar that focuses on debt collection. And this will come out at some point. We don't know whether AI is sentient. I'm not going to argue that for the time being. I just want to just assume that the AI bot was trying to do a debt collection and something happens. Then this is someone doesn't want to pay. And for some very clever reason, the AI bot is somehow able to touch your Claros protocol because it's decentralized. I just need to find another smart contract program to settle the arbitration process. Because Fatima is... Well, I don't know whether we can do a proof of humanity on her, but if let's say I'm the company human being and I'm credible on Claros, this is a very interesting system and say, I'll vouch for Fatima as an AI avatar to arbitrate this process. And some in your system, you're willing to say, okay, we can allow this non-sentient being to be real. So it's actually thinking about your bots 
if it becomes intelligent? How would you deal with a use case like that? I mean, that's where the use case becomes more philosophical because the goal of proof of humanity is just to decide that all of the people who are going to be accepted into this registry are humans. So I don't know why is being human so special in the end? Why don't both would need to have some voting rights also? Why and why not animals? <laughs> no. So this is, if you want, I mean, from the strict point of view, would look to be like a deep fake kind of, of case. This avatar can fake to be human. And this is this is going to be one of the big attack vectors for the future of proof of humanity is going to be these deep fakes. For now, the thing is that making an acceptably credible deep fake is expensive because you need time and the reward you could get by getting a deep fake into the system, it's not that high compared to what you would have to spend in making that deep fake to get it into the system. Mm. So it kind but, of, the, yeah. But maybe let me play yeah. devil's advocate here. And it's getting a little bit philosophical here. Let's say everyone loves Fatima in, yeah. in collecting the debts. And the arbitration is really about question of fairness. Let's forget whether it's an AI bot or, or human programming the AI bot. Will okay. Clara still take the case? I think this is a very interesting aspect because it, it stretches the concept of distribution of justice. Justice should be above all. It doesn't matter whether it's human or not human from there. But I know it's stretched the limits of where Kleros is from your point of view. No, in the end, Kleros, there is one different proof of humanity and then Kleros is, is a tool, but it's not the same as proof of humanity. So <clears throat> there is no reason why both could not be an, arbit an arbitrary in Kleros, an arbitrator. They can, as long as they deposit the uh, token, they are drawn. And as long as this bot responds to incentives in the sense of response to economic incentives and tries to find a shilling point and try to coordinate in the right way. It's good. You don't know because in the end, if they use Kleros without registering proof of humanity, they, you want, the only thing you see is a Ethereum address. And that's not a problem. So it, will, it could be a fridge between cases. As long as that fridge produces rulings that are consistent, it won't lose money and it will make money and then it will use that money to buy milk or whatever, it still will work. And the thing is, what happens? The question I ask myself sometimes, okay, let's imagine this Fatima AI, it's great for, but if you put three AIs to see the same case, will they always get to the same decision? Or they can be replaced by just one AI solving all of them, or different AIs could have different ways to interpret. Because in the end, you could say, okay, what's the difference between humans and AI? You, we all see evidence, we all see information, we follow rules in order to make a decision following this information. I, if this produces the right decisions and the right answers to the cases that Teros needs to solve, who cares if it's an AI or not? That's a no, good question. That's a very fair point because as of today, we still do not have good enough AI algorithms to do analogies, for example, okay? We still don't have AIs that can figure out exactly what pace or aesthetics really means, agree? But assuming that, let's say, somebody figures out an algorithm to learn, which not unlikely, it just takes a little bit more time, maybe thinking about behavioral psychology, maybe advances from there can help to make it more scientific. The question really goes down to when we think of AI and then a con concept of a smart contract dealing with this kind of arbitration process is almost like two programs interacting as such. But I think if you were to just 
take it all the way is probably getting very philosophical, like what we are talking about, all these situations here, right? I'm going to ask a different question here. So you probably are familiar with Balaji's network states. Could you foresee yeah. like Kleros just being like a jurisprudence system that any network state can plug and play? Actually, Balaji cites Kleros in his book. At some point, he says that jurisdictions like network states could have Kleros-style digital trials to resolve claims. So totally, this is exactly a system that you would want to use in a network state. Network states are spread across jurisdictions. They kind of have lots of claims that are like smaller value. So probably... If you ask me, maybe Kleros was developed with the concept of the network state in mind, even way before network states were a thing. There is a very old interview I did in 2015, I think, even before Kleros, where I was saying to, you know, Max Kaiser in the program about Russian TV, he, was, and he interviewed me and he asked me, how does it work? Imagine the future where you we all live in, in VR worlds and then you have a dispute between human and an AI. And then this dispute over something is going to be handled by a panel of half humans and half you know, AIs. No, this is what I was saying. This was in 2015. Imagine before even I met you. So that sounded like super crazy. But in the end, these network states, or now people call them this network state on metaverse because the hype cycle always finds new words. So in the end, it was like a justice system for network states and for metaverses. It was just crafted in different worlds because that concept didn't exist back then, but it was kind of the same vision since the very, very beginning. And Network State book puts this in a very concrete way and very clear way. Some things that I was thinking already back then. Maybe from the Network State thing, because I spoke to Balajis on this as well. Oh. The concept of governance, the concept of DAOs, and the concept of constitutions. The un estimated thing that most people in the crypto world talk about because you are rewriting the world's legal economics and also cryptography into what i call a new form of governance a new form of constitution and a new form of ways how people create a set of rules that everybody live by in the concept of decentralized autonomous organizations how does Kleros need to design that? And obviously, we went through 5,000 years of evolution in all these things. And there are a lot of constitutions. I can think of Linda Colley's book on the gun, the ship, and the pen, where you've gone through a lot of histories of constitutions. People changed it. People rewrite it. I liked it because when I was younger, when I built societies, I write constitutions for at least two societies I know. So I know that I enjoy that process of creating policy, the way how we think, the way how we vote. And even years later, I got challenged on some of the things I put inside the constitution. So I'm just very curious about when we design a system like Claros based on a specific concept of game theory. And the question I'm going to ask you is, how do you ingest Claros as a system, given that there's so many different constitutions out there, different ways of people even creating the DAOs as well? and the community needs to set a vote? This is an excellent question, and this is exactly what I am researching now. So we have Web3, we have DAOs, we have people, users need to vote on initiatives, and we are starting to think, what is the right way to organize the governance of these DAOs? And what happens if there is a majority that wants to crush the minority rights? All of the questions that we had in the history of political thoughts 
are the questions that we are starting to think about now. So let me give you a very specific use case of Claros. That is not the use case I typically pitch because it's a use case that is very much into the future and it's very much into like singularity kind of style. So we make this DAO. And now you have the majority of people, they want to vote something that we think is super contrary to the values of the DAO or the want to have it. So what if when we make the DAO constitution, we make division of powers like the Montesquieu proposed in foreign states, and then you have Cleros as su Supreme Court. And then if some governance proposal in some DAO contradicts the essential values of the DAO, then someone could appeal to Cleros and Cleros could vote whether this proposal is or not compatible with the values of the DAO. So it could be deemed by Cleros as inconstitutional, right? And then overturned. So this is a use case of Cleros as a Supreme Court. And, and I think this is going to be a very important part of, of the DAO governance. I first, I spoke about this was in the Osaka DevCon in 20, 2019. And I'm going to share the, you would like this talk. And then we have an experience, and now we are doing lots of research on how to build a constitution for DAOs, how, what should be the process. We are partnering for this with BlockchainGov, that is research from Europe, from France, led by a very famous researcher called Primavera de Filippi. She's like a very old pioneer of blockchain law. And we are doing some research together on what do a constitution building process should look for the world of DAOs and how could Claros be part of that? This is a very interesting topic because I think that people underestimated the concepts of constitutions. No matter how fair the US Supreme Court is, in all fairness, I've read most of the classics in jurisprudence, whether it's Hart, the concept of law, Doykin's Law Empire, everything. I find it very interesting. The Supreme Court is being appointed by political appointees. People think that the system cannot be gamed, but instead what happened is people game the system by appointing the judges that they want. You and I will probably know in mathematics, there's a very well-known thing called Godel's incompleteness theorem. A system can be consistent, but there will always exist one rule that would, it makes it consistent, but yet it may not make it complete. And this is the limitation of human knowledge where you design legal systems within this. Go to this incompleteness and say, I can make it consistent, but there will be certain gray areas that you can't touch if I really want to in take the inference to the next level. And that is the part where no matter how we design constitutions, that the legal system is actually a mirror reflection of how people interpret justice. If you think about it, from it's actually taking the abstract of the concept of justice and reflect it into acceptable ways that we have as the legal system. And if Kleros is that system that reflects the blockchain, the decentralization, there will always exist inconsistencies. Then how do you, as a founder, and because we talk about this all the time, and probably there will, it's not just you now, it's got to be all the researchers in the world thinking about the same problem. How do you add these intricacies or changes on evolution of human governance in the future? onto the system. Okay, well, I have researched this a lot. I didn't know that you were such an expert in this. You always surprised me, but I have done lots of research about this, especially since we started this process. I mean, I had my background already in political philosophy, institutional economics, so lots of different things I, that I was doing before that was got me interested into Claros and this type of institution building for digital economies. But 
lately, especially the last year, I have been reading a lot of political philosophy, especially in the context of constitution building. So the question is, why do some political systems work better than others? You know, why the case of U.S. was successful, while Argentina, that was a wealthy country at some point in the past, ended up badly? And why did other countries follow a different route? I guess Singapore went the opposing path from Argentina. It went from a poor country in, and in one generation became one of the most powerful economies. So there is one element from what I gather, and this is work in progress. I might change my mind about all this. There is one element of design of institutions. So how you balance power, how many judges in the Supreme Court, how many senators, two chambers, one chamber, the voting system should be first past the post, a proportional, whatever. Although there is one thing that is about that. This is kind of the game theoretical element, the mechanism design. Then the constitution is a game theory element, providing incentives to different agents to do some actions. You want these actions to be non-destructive for the system. So that's one element. But there is another element, and I, it's very well explained in this book called How Democracies Die. It's a book about, well, I read this last year, and what they say is that the US Constitution, when they finished the Constitution in the late 18th century, the founding fathers, they were like, this is not going to work. We could completely screw up our attempt to do a Constitution. We failed at negotiating, this is not going to... And they thought it would never work. And what this book argues is that it actually worked not that much because of the design of the institutions, but more because of the political culture that the U.S. had. A lot of the rules that you know, make America work is because there is kind of some trust happening in the society, there is some social capital, and because the elites, even if there is not a rule that forbids the president to pardon himself, for example, I mean, they don't do it because they think it's part of the shared values of the political culture. So there is also a lot of that in how DAOs work or communities work. And this is something that it's not very easy. How do you create a good political culture? I guess you mean education, you can teach at schools to be civil. I imagine some of that, but it's not that obvious because so even if I give you the recipe of how to make the perfect constitution, if you don't have the political culture for that to work, it's still not going to work. And then there are other elements coming from the way in which the civil society works. Like Tocqueville admired America because of the nation of joiners idea of social capital, people doing lots of stuff, not asking the government for things, self-organizing in associations and lots of civil stuff. So there is this book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone that is about how the culture of associating that America had when they I mean, started to become lost in the past 30 years. And now you have this big divide, which is affecting a lot the organization potential of the US as a society. And this, so some of the doubts that are coming now, are, are, I could go and speak about Ray Dalio and the book, I'm a, also you know, Peter Turchin. I don't know how much you want to be bored by me. Just tell me. No, I've actually <laughs> been reading Peter Turchin. I was I find it interesting because as a, as a theoretical physicist, I looked at things as first principles and reading all these philosophy books during the period where I was really doing nothing other than researching and having that very good seven years in Cambridge, where it's really where most of these things 
I evolved, it really taught me a lot about thinking through things like constitution, thinking about jurisprudence as such. And to be fair, Kleros is addressing some of these questions. There are, although there's a lot of big questions, but I think we also need to be realistic. How much can we solve for in some of use cases? Right? So I, I'm pretty sure we're going to have this longer conversation. But since you asked me to do Lex Freeman style conversation, I thought I can stretch it as much as I can. But I want to bring it more to the ground. I know that you are aware that I'm looking a lot into the decentralized insurance space. I thought maybe we can talk a little bit about the applications of Claros that specifically touches things like insurance, e-commerce, and even intellectual property. Yeah, so there are two use cases in insurance that we are working more actively now. There are lots more. I'm just going to start by the one that is more like down to earth. And this involves traditional insurance companies. Let's say you are an insurance company. This is a pilot we are doing. I cannot say the name of the company because of NDA stuff, but I can explain how this works. So you have situations where there is a car accident and one of the policyholder wants to be compensated because of the terms of the uh, uh, contract. And the guy asks for like 100 and the insurance company thinks that he should only be compensated for 20. So what happens? This could go to small claims court or to some other system. So Claros can solve this situation. How do you determine who is right in lots of insurance cases, car crash, crop insurance, there is a insurance for rain insurance, or you name it. Insurance has lots and lots of use cases and Claros could be very interesting for lots of them. So you have, for example, in recent times, you know, this called this thing called parametric insurance that self-executes when there is some, if there is more rain than 100 millimeters, then pay the the farmer, whatever. So, but what if the you know there was a bad measurement and lots of situations that would happen? This thing broke and now you don't know if to pay or not. So the smart contract can self-execute the payment, but they cannot solve the problem if if you don't have the data. So this is where Claros can be used as well. So there are lots of different applications in the field of insurance where. Because this is where there are lots of claims, basically. And before I dive a little bit deeper on the insurance question, what about like e-commerce or intellectual property? So in the IP world, what we see as a very big potential, we are having this world of NFTs. And NFTs is the big thing going to happen for IP infringement everywhere, right? Because, hey, an NFT, this very famous Tarantino case against Miramax Studios, Tarantino was the director of the movie Pulp Fiction, and then he made an NFT of his script, the original script, and then Miramax said, hey, Mr. Tarantino, when you sold us the rights to do the movie, you also agreed to share with us the revenue from your potentially your script selling as an NFT. Of course, NFTs didn't exist in 1992, but <laughs> so Tarantino sold this in an auction, and now there is a dispute about point that bit of money, I think it's more than a million dollars. So that is a very concrete example of where things can go wrong in IP. This is a high profile use case. Think use cases like I put, I make a picture, you steal it from me, from my blog, and you put it in yours, and now you sell it. So all of these use cases, I mean, are lots of problems happening in IP. How can Kleros work here? What we think is that Kleros can be more like a verification system in more similar to proof of humanity. Let's say that someone makes a, or we make a certification for images that are like a certified non-breaking IP rights. So let's say you, Bernard, you are from a NFT marketplace 
and you want to make sure that all of the images that put for sale in the marketplace are not infringing on copyright. So you could have a system where you only list images that were previously accepted into this list by my Kleros. And if I want my image to be on your marketplace, I submit it with a deposit. People check if it breaks with some copyright from someone. If it doesn't, then accept it and then you list it. If it's rejected because someone has a claim on that, then it doesn't get to get listed. So you have this system for verification that is it's like more like a dispute avoidance system. It's not like, a, it's yeah. not like going to court when someone already broke your rights. Because part thing about that is that most times you will never know who, I mean, stole it because it's anonymous. So it's very hard to prosecute, you know, so better safe than sorry in the world of IP. Hmm. And that's interesting because that sounds like a patents registry, but in a web tree world or copyright in a web tree world as well. It depends on whether it's a design or whether it's an invention or not. It is kind of that because they have to check. In the end, judors or these verifiers, they will check if this piece of art or of property, the other property, is new or not, basically. Is it new? Then it's accepted. The patent is accepted. It complies with the whatever. It's not new because, okay, no, look, this is this guy's work, right? And the thing is that in this type of use cases, there is a lot of subjectivity and lots of rules. But yeah, this is a new invention, but it kind of builds on what Bernard invented. But it's not the same because it has this little change. But this little change is enough to say it's a different product or not. So you, then you start entering into these discussions that happen, for example, in the world of YouTube. YouTube, I put a video there and you say, hey, that was my video. This is mine. No, I make some changes. So it's not the same. I was inspired by you. So who decides this? Content ID will check this. And in the end, some moderator will decide if this is infringing or not. This moderator is a YouTube employee. Why not using Claro's jury trial for deciding this? So uh, let me take you to a much more interesting hypothetical situation. You probably know the concept of patent trolling. So yeah. imagine I found a lot of patents on a very specific area. Maybe they are not invented in NFT. Based on the trajectory of innovation, you will go this way. And subsequent, what I could run is run a submarine patent attack on your smart contract. Probably if you think about it, and because your system needs to check for IP, and it keeps pressing in my favor because I'm able to project out. I mean, for certain inventors, it actually can work. I don't know whether that specific situation has ever shown up yet, but I can think of a situation somebody can submarine pattern your system and pattern troll I mean, the other people. Because I know at the moment, you're, what you're trying to do is you provide the registry to check, right? But if I put enough infinite amount of content for the system to check yeah. and keep allowing me to win the dispute, you can see that happening quite easily. In the end, this is not a problem for Kleros specifically. Kleros will just enforce the rules that need to be enforced. So maybe the question here is how to prevent this to happen? What rules should the jury... I don't, I don't know how this exactly works in the legacy world because I'm not a patent expert, 
But how do people deal with this now? I think they actually put into legislation that you're not allowed to patent troll. That okay. was a very well-known use case, but that's because it's artificially placed into the system for doing it. But certain aspects of patent trolling is still allowed in the US. I'm actually quite surprised by it, but you can see it doesn't matter how we think about protection of intellectual property. It can be used even against us in a very different way. I think human creativity, in terms of how it games the system, it's still something AI cannot duplicate. The joke of it recently, AI using deep learning to beat world-class Go players. But now what happens is that because Go players are playing against the AI, so recently a, a specific, like an amateur player was running a set of moves that make the AI learn wrongly and beat it in, in thinking about it. So I'm thinking in the world of smart contracts, it's also similar that way because we haven't evolved to that stage. And what I like about talking to you on Claros is that it has this ability for me to think about systems. And, and I think this is a rather deep conversation in how we think about all your applications. And there are certain precedents that we have not, that may have happened in the legal world, the traditional world, but has not mirrored into your world yet. Yeah. Are you a good chess player, Bernard? Well, you see me play chess with Yuri, you should probably know how good I am. I'm right? sure you won. I mean, no. I, this is something I kind of researched a bit. No, I'm not expert in chess, but you know, I know that there is this, well, people cheating using machines to assist them to play. And this is potentially something that Kleros could at some point solve. One of the early inspirations for Kleros is, was the gaming industry. There was this game called Counter-Strike, it was shooter. And then there was this system for resolving disputes about one player claiming that the other was breaking the rules because of, I don't remember what was exactly the... You could Playing not stay in God mode for, or cheat mode. <laughs> yeah, so, or you go through walls. And so when someone claimed that there was someone breaking the rules, they could like challenge this play. And then this goes to a jury of other players who just will see the game, the video, and they're going to, oh yeah, this behavior is cheating behavior or not. Of course, this didn't have the other shelling point system. It was not blockchain. It was like a very rudimentary system, but had the main tenets of what Claros is, this idea of crowdsourcing the resolution of the cases into peers. Other players would resolve the problems or the dispute happening in this game, not lawyers, other players. This was also coming from the, you know, in the Middle Ages, in the Lex Mercatoria, are good in this history of law, the, law, the merchants did not have their dispute solved by state courts or let alone priests. They had their dispute solved by other merchants who knew what it was about, what was business, they knew about letters of credit, they knew the practices. So they want people to understand this idea of, of how business is done to resolve these claims. That was where arbitration, the root of arbitration. And this was also in the gaming industry. So kind of other chess players or other Counter-Strike or other Age of Empires game, whatever, can understand better and they can, under the right incentives, produce the right decisions for this to be solved. This is kind of one of the early inspirations for Claros in the world of gaming, which we think it's going to be a big use case. You know, esports are becoming a bigger industry than traditional sports. And you can totally have a, a panel of people arbitrating these type of disputes. I'm getting back to Claros as it is. We talk a lot about very abstract, very down-to-earth applications. 
Can you talk about the global coverage of Claros, as in how many developers are building on your platform? I'm pretty sure now you have someone in Asia Pacific running Claros operations. So I presume that it's pretty distributed, decentralized. And what are the highlights as well? You, you got UN to speak to you running a smart contract system. So tell me more. Yeah, so we are about 30 people from lots of different countries. So co-founders are, well, me from Argentina and Clément, my co-founder, is from France. Then we have our head of research, William. He's a mathematician from the University of Toronto, cryptographer, and he does like all of the game theory, the cryptoeconomics of the system. Then we have people in Brazil, the designer, for example. We have another, a couple more in Argentina for business development. We have people in Spain, most of them developers. In Germany, US, Portugal, one of the members of the executive team is a French guy called John Baptiste, and he lives in Portugal. And then Wang Mian, who is also from the executive team, he's from Singapore, and he's a leader of commercial integrations and all that. So we are 30, we just, we are in, and we spend lots of time on Slack and we interact, and we just see each other in general, all together twice a year when we have the big Ethereum conferences. We typically go to the Ethereum Paris conference every July, and then the DevCon, that is the global one. And yeah, we work with that and I know it's fun. Before we used to work like this before COVID and people said, Hey, how can you do your work remotely? Everyone, you don't have any office or what? Well, everyone understood how you run it. You can run a system or a project remotely. So we have a, an incubator to incentivize, to support people who are building their apps based on Kleros. So we had in the past, we incubated projects that do NFTs, the detection of fake news, for example, you could use Claros to detect fake news. I mean, another one is a marketplace for freelancers. And another one is like a marketplace, but for like products and services. So yeah, we have that and we have a fellowship program where people who want to do research about Claros, it can come and we give them advice. We have quite an important research team. William is the leader of the team. And then we have two PhDs who are doing their PhD in France, in the Paris de Assas University, which is one of the most important law school in France. And they research you know, the interactions. So one of them researches game theory and the other one, Jamilia, who is from Russia, she researches the interactions between Kleros and the legal systems of the traditional world. So one of the big things that came out of this fellowship was a fellow that did some research on how to use Kleros in Mexico. And in particular, he made this research that got a ruling of Kleros accepted by a traditional Mexican court in a landlord versus tenant arbitration case over the non-paying of, of the rent. Kleros resolved it. This was sent to the judge. The judge accepted the, the ruling. And this was, to my knowledge, the first ever election arbitration ruling that is enforced by a traditional state court. It's happened in Guadalajara, Mexico, and it's a very big thing. So this is a bit of an overview of the project. And uh, now the main thing that we are working on is the launch of Kleros 2.0, which comes with a lot of improvements from the research we've done since, I'd say, 2018. Kleros nowadays works mostly for binary disputes. This new system incorporates a lot of different game theory assumptions so we can solve like non-binary disputes or where you can like rank for options and then all of this that sounds very simple it's super complicated when you deal with chilling points because 
paradox of choice and lots of different situations that happen that you have to deal with and that could attack in the end the system. So lots of what we do is so research and then turn this research into specs for smart contracts. Then we make sure that they don't hack them because we have lots of auditing to do up there. And then, yeah, I'm trying to use to get new use cases for Claros to work. So what are the new areas which Claros is now exploring in the bear market? I assume that a lot of people are building at this point in time. And Claros is EVM compatible based on development. Yeah. So new use cases and areas we are exploring. One of the, I think, very big areas that are going to come is this world of real world assets. So we did a joint research with Maker, the Maker Foundation, on, I'm sure you read Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital Books, so you know that there is lots of stuff in the world that are not being used as collateral or are not connected to the financial system because they are like not registered and they are not, don't participate in finance, especially in the emerging markets. So one of the things is, let's say, DAI, so the maker community wants to have DAI have more collateral than just other cryptos. You know, now DAI is collateralized by other cryptos, which they go up and down at the same time. This is not great. And well, and also lots of USDC is so. So, but let's say they want to have as collateral stocks from companies or I don't know, like land from some country or a car or a motorcycle or Let's say I put my car or my house as collateral and I mint die with that. So what happens if my vault needs to be liquidated, right? So now they should liquidate my house. But what happens if, how do they liquidate my house? They should, it should be a token. This house should be made as a token and then this put in the vault as a collateral. But so what does this token actually mean? Let's say it's liquidated and someone gets this token and then goes you know, to Argentina court and says, Mr. Judge, do I have this token and give me the house because it's, how do you connect this world of traditional law and assets to tokens? And how do you make sure that there is correspondence between one stuff in the real world is actually belongs to this token? Claros could verify that. So you have, as you know, already you send the submission, it's accepted into the list. Now the token is accepted and jury will verify if this token is a good, I mean, if this house is actually valuable as an asset that can be collateralized. So there are lots of different things that Claros can verify in this real world assets use case. And this is super exciting because when you have unleashed this potential of real-world assets on, on chain. Imagine everything becomes a market and you can, I can send you my token of my bike against your token that represents a share of, I don't know, Messi's rights to be playing at some team or against the royalties of a music, whatever, from Japan. So this real-world assets, I think it's one of the holy grails of the crypto industry. And we at Leros are working at a bit on how to use our technology to provide this service of verification of how stuff can be on-chain represented in the in right way. I don't have a lot of great builders, founders of protocols coming around to my podcast so often. So this question I probably should ask you, what keeps you up at night? When you work in the crypto industry, I guess everyone, every founder is kept at night by just hoping that no one calls him in the middle of the night 
saying that they were hacked. That's, I guess they all should, all, if they're not saying that, they are lying, basically. So, of course, this is an industry where you have like lots of different risks, not just price going up and down, which is it's, it's okay. But, but yeah, there's lots of risks in that smart contract risk, all of these things that you, cybersecurity risks. And this is something that, of course, it's something that keeps you up. And for me, also, it's important. I, mean, I came to this industry because I wanted to solve the, you know, the justice problem. And then I saw that crypto was maybe the solution for, for that. It's not that I was into crypto and then I tried to see, okay, what can I do with crypto in order to... No. So in my case, I want Gleros to actually solve the problem I wanted to solve in the first place. And this is the research I have been doing all of these years. And uh, yeah, that's what keeps me up at night. I mean, we want to Gleros to scale. We have been doing this through a long time. We have a project that was born in 2017 and it's like still alive and working and still developing. And there are not many, you know, and we want this to scale. One thing we had with Gleros is that we were super early. We were starting to develop the dispute resolution system for eBay when eBay was not even invented in some way, right? So we had to wait to some degree to wait for the industry like to catch up with what we were doing. Right? I was speaking to, to a VC once and he was saying, like, there are two kinds of projects. He said, one type of project is when the I mean, founders are really good at understanding what's the next hype thing going and assembling a team to address that thing. And it, it's okay. This is a, it's a perfectly good way to build it, perfectly timing the market and that's good. But the second type of project is some people that have a vision of what the industry will need at some point, even if the industry doesn't know that, and they build that and then they wait for the industry to catch up. And when that happens, they are unstoppable. In some way, of course, you have done the second version. To some degree, we, we looked like crazy guys. I mean, I met you in 2016. I was pitching you exactly the same I am saying now. And of course, this was super early days of Ethereum. Ethereum was just being started. That was when the DAO hack happened. We were at Singularity and it was super, super early. And, but we kept pushing and here we are. And if you see now we have a team, we have a, let me, industry recognition. We have recognition and I think something that is very important, not only within the crypto industry. I would say also, I think Claros is better known outside of crypto than inside of crypto. I think that every lawyer or everyone, every person is interested in legal innovation, arbitration, they know about Claros. There is 90% chance they know about Claros if they are into legal innovation. In crypto, maybe less, because we are not a, bit of a project of like a hype kind of project, but of course the OGs know and Vitalik mentions Claros very often because we, because we have been around for a long time and I think, of course, he understands the, the needs that the ecosystem of Ethereum has for something like Leros. So, I mean, I guess that what keeps me up at night is like making this work and, and scale. And my traditional final closing question, what does great look like for Claros in the next few years? Before I get you on, of course, for the next conversation. So the main thing for us now is, as I said, launching the V2 and, the, and a very important thing of V2 I, don't, I didn't mention is that it's going to enable the low value use cases because it's built on a roll-up, it's more efficient. And so these cases I was mentioning at the beginning of the conversation of a $200 case, you know, this is only becoming feasible after we launch this new version of Claros. So this is when we can start doing the vision that was 
already in the first white paper we published. You know, a guy who is from Peru and he's on the bus going to work and he's on his phone. He's solving a case and earning money from his phone, making like $5 when he's on the bus going to, yeah, to, to, to his job. And yeah, it took us seven years, but now it's, now it's happening and uh, super excited about this. And yeah, what I said, we will succeed when we can start building you no know, micro justice for microtransactions and we address this high volume and low value use cases. We can handle higher value as well, but I would be more happy when we can change the world by giving people, I mean, as we started, because the vision has not changed that much for me. The guy from Argentina now can make money by selling services to the world, and he can make money by being an adjudicator of conflicts happening in, in the world. And it doesn't matter where he is. He learns with the internet, with YouTube, he learn, he can be paid with crypto, and now he can have this system for having property rights and being higher from the world. So this is the vision, and this is what we are building, and it's very close to, to, to happen. Federico, many thanks for coming on the show. And uh, it's probably one of the deepest conversations we have on distributed justice and everything else together with Claros as well. So in closing, I have two questions. First question is, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Oh, well, Network State is a great book. I have been reading a lot lately about cognitive evolutionary psychology. I have reading, been reading a lot of institutions. As I mentioned, How Democracies Die, another great book. Lots of institutional building stuff. I've been reading the Demagogue Playbook by Eric Bosner, who is the co-author of Glenn Weil in Radical Markets. So read that one if you are interested in how to deal with demagogues and DAOs. Read, well, of course, Radical Markets. Those are off the top of my head. Those I have been reading like lately. I'm, I read, I'm very much fan of Hayek. So if you have not read Hayek, I strongly recommend that you start reading Hayek. I will just add on to the History of Constitutions by, it's called The Gun, the Ship and the Pen by Linda Colley which is a pretty good book on constitutions, if anybody is interested in it. I didn't know that. I will read that one as well. How do my audience find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Federico Ast, um, LinkedIn, Federico Ast. Yeah, and check Claro's website, you know, claros.io. And yeah, spend lots of time in, on Telegram as well, in the Claros community. So you can come to our community and be a juror, earn money while you bring justice to the world. So yeah, what are you waiting? And this is almost a two-hour conversation because it started very early, as early as 4 a.m. in my time. And I think it's about 4 p.m. in your time. So uh, Federico, many thanks for coming on the show. Of course, to all out there, I only need two things from you. Sign up for our newsletter where I'm actually giving out monthly highlights of some of the conversations that I will summarize and second subscribe to my YouTube channel so that I can increase to become a partner of YouTube that's only the first small step but it will get that way Federico thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon thank you Bernard see you <laughs>